Amen. Well, as you can see, there are no more balloons behind me, although that one up there is just uh, not going down. I don't know what the deal is, so might have to get someone with a little pellet gun to take it down if it lasts too much, too much longer. But uh, new stage means new, a new sermon series. So we're starting something uh, new this morning. We're starting a new series, a short one, called Getting Life Right. And it's a short series on the book of Malachi. Uh, so there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful for you too. Malachi is an Old Testament prophet. So yes, I like to preach in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We're gonna, we want to certainly hear the Lord's word from both of them. Uh, Malachi, sometimes called the only Italian prophet, right? Malachi. Uh, it's uh, no laughter. on Barely any laughter on that one, right? But uh, it's such an old joke, that's why. But uh, uh, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. So he's, if you uh, kind of date all the different prophets, you put a date on the prophets, that's what I'm saying, and then you look at who is the last one who prophesied in the Old Testament, you'd get Malachi, and after him is a long, centuries-long time of silence before the coming of Jesus and the beginning of the book of Matthew. So this is the sort of final word the Lord has for Israel, his people, before he brings the Lord Jesus into the world. Uh, Malachi deals with a lot of different subjects. He has a sort of scorched earth perspective. So I just want to warn you, uh, he is not, uh, this is the Lord speaking through Malachi, but he's not happy with what's going on in Israel. It's a very sort of harsh book, but in doing so, he deals with a number of different topics. That's why I think we're getting life right. It's a broad uh, 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 book. Uh, But we're going to cover four things. So it's going to be a four-week series. Cover worship, ministry, holiness, and hope. Those are the four subjects we're going to look at as we look through the book of Malachi. And of course, we're going to start with worship. And there's a reason why we begin there. There's a reason why Malachi begins there. And that's because when you set in place worship, rightly, everything else tends to fall into place. I'll give you just a parallel of this. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm on this health kick, so I'm trying to eat healthier and be healthier in general. And uh, I remember I had a, a, a policy or a personal policy when I was in my 20s. Eat anything you want, anytime you want, just make sure you go to the gym. That was my policy in the 20s, and when I was in my 20s. And uh, then I hit my 30s, and that didn't work so well. I mean, uh, it started to catch up to me, <laughs> and realizing that you can't just eat whatever you want, anytime you want, and, uh, and, and expect to stay healthy. So then I realized I've got to start making some changes in how I actually eat. So I started doing that. I can't, you know, every day can't be Taco Tuesday, right? You just can't do it that way. I used to go to, uh, you can ask Kina, I'd go to Taco Bell every day, every day for lunch. Uh, it was just not a healthy thing. So I actually read somewhere that getting healthy is 80% diet and only 20% exercise. And that kind of really struck me. That, that kind of turns your world upside down, that your diet is that important to really set and order everything when it comes to your health. Well, friends, as diet is to your health, so worship is to your life. When you sort of put worship in its proper place, that's what Malachi is going to be telling us here, and give it the attention it really deserves in the proper place in your life, other aspects of your life begin to fall into place. God is worthy of wholehearted worship. Friends, we all worship. Every one of us. The question is what and how. Tim Keller, pastor, writes, you don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get 
is what to worship. And I would add how to worship as we look at here in Malachi chapter 1. Turn with me there if you will. Like I said, we'll have it on the screen, but also be in your bulletin. And we have Bibles for those who want to read it right out of the scriptures. Feel free to grab that. Malachi chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. That God is worthy of wholehearted worship. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who, that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a wariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. The word of the Lord. So we're going to be looking at how God is worthy of wholehearted worship. There's a breakdown in your bulletin. We're going to start with verses 1 through 5. And it's amazing that we can read a book that's 2,500 years old and still see what it says to us as God's people and how we worship the Lord too. Written originally to Israel, but applying also to us as God's people today. First, that worship begins... By recognizing that God loves us. Isn't that interesting? The first thing he says after identifying himself as Malachi is, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's his first statement to Israel. I have loved you. And notice their response to that is, how have you loved us? So they're now kind of, in a sense, questioning God's love. And I think it's not just an innocent question. There's a little bit of an edge to it. Like, you really haven't loved us, Lord. You really haven't shown love to us. 
You haven't been as good to us as we wanted. But God is, then answers by talking about how he's brought judgment on other nations who were really ultimately the enemies of Israel. So when he talks about Jacob and Esau, those are nations. Originally they were people. Jacob and Esau, they were twins. But they became nations. And when he talks about God's love for Jacob, that's Israel, and his hatred for Edom, the point is one of comparison. That God has chosen Israel out of all the nations of the world. He has made them his special people and he is protecting them, even bringing judgment on the nations around them. So Edom is Esau. And when Edom says, okay, you built, you, you'll break us down, but we'll rebuild. And God says, no, you won't ultimately rebuild and be an enemy to Israel. I will continue to protect my people. In other words, what he's saying is, I have loved you and I'm going to defend my love to you by doing this, by showing you my love as I judge those around you and protect you. My love for you is shown through my actions. And he ends by saying, you will say that great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. In other words, eventually your eyes will be open to the fact that I have been protecting you all of these centuries long as my people. But friends, notice that. That worship begins, it doesn't begin with my love for God. That's not how worship begins. Worship begins with us first recognizing that God loves us. That, that He made the first move. Do you remember some of you guys who have been in churches for a while, this church or other churches, for a while the big thing was that we should talk about uh, in-reach, up, up, upreach, which is worship, in-reach, and then outreach. Well, I had one pastor remind me, say, you know, it actually all begins with downreach. Because until there's a downreach of God to us, we have no outreach, we have no in-reach. We have, some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're familiar with that terminology, it begins with God first reaching down to us. He made the first move. Like the great hymn, uh, for those who are familiar with it, My Jesus, I Love Thee, how does it start? It's written by a 16-year-old, by the way. The music was written by A.J. Gordon, but it goes, I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. God reaches to us first. He makes the first move. He has loved us. And his love is shown by his actions. Just like it was shown to his actions for Israel and the way he protects them and redeems them and saves them, so God has shown his love to us by sending his own son to us who lived like us, died in our place, rose from the dead to conquer the grave. His love is shown for the fact that, by the fact that he sends his spirit to us to dwell within us, to care for us, to provide for us, to protect us. God first loves us. Why is that important? When it comes to worship, worship is not us giving something that God needs. You know, God's not sitting in heaven and he needs something from us and he's waiting for us to give it to him. That's not what worship is. Worship is offering a right response to God for his love for us. It begins with what he has done for us. Friends, I, I pray and I hope that you, First Baptist Church of Haverhill, that you know that God loves you. Before we offer anything back to him, Know that he loves you. Friends, you and I will never worship well until we first see his love for us. Worship is not a payment to God. It's not just simply fulfilling a duty that we have. It's recognizing the love of God and giving a response to him. 
Not a cheap love. Actually, it's a very expensive love. It came at the cost of his own son. A real, true, and deep love for you and for me. And that's where we start. And how do you respond? That's what worship is. How do you respond to the fact that God loved you enough to send his son for you? God loved you so much that he cares for you and adopts you into his own family. Well, one thing, hopefully, it makes you smile. <laughs> Let's start there, right? When you think about the love of God, does it make you happy? Does it make you joyful? Worship should be joyful to bring a spontaneous smile to your face to know that God loves you. Does it make you sing? <laughs> That's why we sing when we worship, right? We sing because we should want to sing when we think about the fact that God has loved us. That He's made the first move to make us His people. Does it make you want to pray? Which is just to talk to God, not offer some long, lengthy written out, necessarily written out prayer, nothing wrong with writing out your prayers, but formal prayer, but are you responding to God by speaking back to Him? Thank you, God. Does it make you act when you think about the love of God? Does it make you want to, to do something, to help others, or to respond in a way that pleases the Lord by your actions? And certainly, does it make you want to tell others about what God has done? That's worship, friends. When you recognize the love of God and it brings a response out of your heart and out of your mind, that's what it means to worship. I have loved you, says the Lord. And Israel's response is not to worship, but to say, prove it. How have you loved us? And to doubt the love of God. But then verses 6 to 8, there is a command here. Uh, Worship honors God as Father. It honors God as Father and as King. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. And the word for honor there is the Hebrew word kabod. Kabod, which means glory or weight, emphasis. When you honor something, you give it weight, you give it value, you give it attention. He's saying, where's this honor that you were supposed to be offering me as your God? A, a, a son honors his father, right? I and mean, that's the basic relationship of honor there. Think of the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. First commandment with a promise. Where's the honor that you would offer me as your father, your heavenly father? A servant offers honor to his master. And later on at the end, actually at the end of this uh, section here, verse uh, 8 here, he talks about a governor. So if you don't like the master image, think of a governor. Would you offer a certain level of respect or reverence to your governor. And then at the end of our whole section, you have the chapter 1, he describes himself as a great king. If you were to meet a king, wouldn't there be a certain reverence, a certain respect? And yet he's saying, Israel, you haven't offered me the basic respect and honor that you would offer your own father or that you would offer your master or governor or king. And then he goes after the priests because the priests are the worship leaders. <laughs> They're the ones who are responsible for the people to bring right worship to the Lord. And he says, you have done a terrible job. <laughs> you have despised my name. And they again respond, how have we despised your name? Again, questioning God. And what's his response? By bringing a bunch of bad animals. <laughs> so the way they worshiped, certainly in, uh, in ancient Israel, was to bring sacrifices to the Lord. And of course, you're supposed to bring the best. The best of the best to the Lord because he's God. Instead... They bring the bottom of the barrel, the leftovers. They bring whatever they, they don't mind getting rid of, basically. And that's their offering to the Lord. The blind animals, the sick animals, the lame animals, the torn animals. And they say, okay, I don't need this anymore. I'm going to offer this to the Lord. I like what Matthew Henry says, the great commentator. If we worship God ignorantly and without understanding, we bring the blind, 
for sacrifice. If we do it carelessly and without consideration, if we are cold and dull and dead, we bring the sick. If we rest in bodily exercise and do not make heart work of it, we bring the lame. And if we suffer vain thoughts and distractions to lodge within us, we bring the torn. As we can do the same thing. As he says there in verse 8, try that with your governor. And imagine, friends, that you're going to have Charlie Baker come over. Uh, for those, I know some, some of you guys are from New Hampshire, but from Massachusetts. He's come, let's say he's coming to visit our church, right? And we don't even really clean up the place. And we don't even make sure there's good parking for him. And we set out a, a spread of old coffee. I mean, we don't, you know, and some old desserts that we kind of found in the church. And nobody makes a big deal of it. What a statement that would be to our own governor. And he's saying that is how you, Israel, have treated the Lord. Notice he describes the Lord here as the Lord of hosts. And that has nothing to do with communion, by the way. The Lord of hosts has to do with the hosts of angels. He is the Lord of the army of angels of heaven. And I think it's appropriate that he's describing God that way because, again, he's trying to show them the Lord is worthy of this kabod. (laughs) He's worthy of this attention. He's worthy of this weight, of this focus. And you're not offering the basic respect and reverence that he deserves. I do like the fact that he uses the analogies there, two analogies, father and master, or father and governor or king. Because when you think about worship, that's really the balance, isn't it? That we go to God like a father, with intimacy. Yes, reverence and honor, but also with intimacy, with a relationship like you would of your own father. Jesus, of course, in his life constantly referred to God as Abba, which literally means dad, basically. And he encouraged us to be able to speak and to relate to God with that same type of intimacy and relationship. But also, God is master. And there is a certain right right fear and reverence and respect that he is due. Friends, when you think about your own worship and how you approach God, if you tend to lean on one side or the other, if you tend to make God only a buddy, you know, God's my, my, my pal, and I get to hang out with him, <laughs> or you know, the other side where, again, God is just so far and distant, and there's a certain reverence there, but you don't have that intimacy of relationship, you're probably going too far on one side or the other. God is worthy of our deepest reverence, but he's also a God we can know like a father. You think of Jesus himself. Some people, well, that's Old Testament. When you come to Jesus, he's much more friendly and, and, and loving. Well, that's, that's true in some ways, but keep in mind, Jesus uh, himself, in his earthly life, he was a carpenter. He was a stonemason. <laughs> so this is not sort of, uh, sometimes you picture Jesus as this sort of skinny, floating kind of philosopher guy. That's not who he was. He was a work-with-his-hands, blue-collar uh, type of guy. He was bold. Jesus had no problem getting into it with the Pharisees and getting into it big time. And uh, the first century world in itself was a rough world. Yes, Jesus was also tender. He was tender particularly with children. He was tender particularly with women. When you think of uh, the woman who comes to him in adultery and so forth, or uh, his relationship with Mary Magdalene or his mother, there's a certain tenderness that Jesus had. But nevertheless, friends, Jesus also demands that certain level of respect. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Friends, let's worship like this. (laughs) Let's worship like this. Let's worship God with a deep sense of reverence and fear and who he is 
and at the same time, a level of intimacy and love and relationship as our Father. Let's sing songs that reflect that. That's one thing I love about uh, the songs that uh, Pastor Mike chooses. They, they lead us into not only fluff, you know, not, not, not fluffy, they have deeper theology. Let's sing songs like, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or holy, 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 though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. The deep sense of the reverence of God. He is set apart, he is holy. But also we sing, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. Friends, we have that level of intimacy. We have that level of reverence. That's worship. Let's worship with tears in our eyes. With passion. And with some theological backbone. And by that, friends, I'm not saying this is not a, a hymns versus praise song thing, by the way. <laughs> I, I, there are some uh, hymns that are, honestly, they're terrible theologically. And I could point out some here, but I don't want to necessarily offend anybody. But there are some tim- uh, hymns, honestly, that theologically, they're really lightweight and they are really not helpful, in my opinion. And then there are some praise songs that are absolutely excellent and profound in what they're saying. And it doesn't have to be that they're necessarily complicated. That's not the idea behind it. But does it bring out that sense of reverence? Does it bring out that sense of intimacy that we get to have with the Lord. Let's worship, friends, with reverence. Let's worship with God as Father. Let's worship with God as Master, as Governor, as King. You know, it's interesting. Worship, I think, is a form of discipleship. When we worship rightly, when we put put our, our hearts right with God and we have a certain reverence for the Lord, yet intimacy and relationship with Him, that's That's discipleship. That's one way in which we grow deeper spiritually as human beings. We take that into our week. Worship is a form of healing. (laughs) You you come from a rough week, as we started the service saying, with all different types of problems, whether that's, again, issues at work, issues at home, with marriage, with parenting, whatever it may be, and you come to worship and there's a sense of healing to know that God, as our Father, cares for us and loves us and has reached down and loved us first. And friends, worship actually is a form of evangelism. (laughs) We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. But I think actually how we worship and how we view God and the joy that we take in relating to God is one of the most important and powerful statements of who God is for the world to see. Let's worship God as Father. Let's worship Him as Master. And in verses 9 and 10, worship seeks God's favor and His grace. It seeks His favor and His grace. Verse 9, he says, And now... Entreat the favor of God. Entreat just means to ask. Ask God for his favor. Ask God for his grace, his unmerited favor. So Malachi is saying, when you worship, you're going to God and looking for something in return. You're going to him and asking for something, depending upon him to offer something in return. Now he goes on in this section in verses 9 to 10 to, tell, to remind them again that your worship has been so pitiful, Israel, that uh, you shouldn't really expect anything from the Lord. In fact, he says, just go ahead and shut the doors. If you're going to continue to worship the way you have been worshiping, he says, shut the doors and just stop offering anything on my altar whatsoever. One uh, commentator really hits home with this. He says the thought may be applied to present-day churches that have ceased to be places where people worship in spirit and in truth and are merely meeting places and nothing more. It would be better for them to close down than to continue misleading those who think that they are, what they're doing pleases God. 
friends, when we go to God, we do look to him for blessings. We do look to him for answers. As God doesn't take pleasure in half-hearted worship, but he does want us to go to him. In fact, Malachi tells us to go to him and look for blessing and look for favor and look for grace. There's something to be gained. There's a benefit for us when we worship. Worship, part of worship is prayer. So one thing we're doing, we're literally asking God for things when we worship him. I don't know if you notice, if you pay close attention to the songs we sing, some songs are, are not asking God for anything. They're just stating what we believe. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. There's, there's no request there. It's just a recognition of the grace of God and saving sinners. But other songs, we're asking God, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing your praise. Lord, protect my heart from wandering. We're, we're asking God something. We're looking for his blessing. And friends, I think when we worship, there is a rich blessing. There is a rich benefit that comes back to us. And I'm not talking about finances necessarily, unless that is the blessing that is needed in your life right now. I'm talking about the blessing of God's very presence with us. See, throughout the Bible, to be in the presence of God is to be changed. Nobody walks into the presence of God and leaves the same way they were when they came into it. And so when we worship and when we meet with God, it should change us. There should be a blessing, a favor that comes with being with Him. Friends, let's keep going to God. Let's keep going to Him for favor and for grace. Don't be afraid to ask God. James, uh, in the book of the New Testament, James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. That's a pretty powerful verse, actually. You didn't ask me, so I didn't give it to you. (laughs) Very simply. If you had asked me, I would have given it to you. But you never actually came to me and asked for it. And so, friends, part of what we're called to do in worship is to go to God in dependence upon Him and to ask. Go to God fully and faithfully. Go to Him willing to give Him your all. To lay your life before Him. But expect Him to answer. Don't hold back in your worship. That's what he's saying in this section. Don't hold back. Don't hold back part of your sin. Like, you know, Lord, you can have my life, but not this little part of my life. That part I'm keeping for myself. That's not worship. Worship is to lay it all before him. It has to do with our giving as well. We're going to talk more about that later on. Um, but uh, certainly, if the Lord's calling you to give and you withhold some of that giving, don't expect him to answer. Or really, friends, your control over your life. You know, I, I, one of the things people do when they worship sometimes is raise your hands. And nobody has to raise your hands, by the way. Actually, it does say in the New Testament, men should raise their hands in praise. But I think this is the position of surrender. <laughs> That's why people raise their hands. Lord, it's all yours. I lay it all before you. I need your grace. I need your blessing. I need your joy. I need your provision. I'm looking for your favor. I'm looking for your grace as I come into your presence. Worship is meant for all people. Verses 11 to 14. It's meant for all people. From, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. All day long. <laughs> When's the right time to worship? The morning or at night? All day long. There is no wrong time to worship. And it says here, my name will be great among all the nations. 
which is a striking thing, actually, because he's talking to Israel, who is, again, as he started off this passage, God's chosen people in the Old Testament here, and yet he's saying, my name will be great among all the goyim in the Hebrew. These are the non-believing nations. These are all the Gentile nations. And he's saying, yes, my name will be great among them. That's the ultimate goal, to see all the nations come to, see, to know my name. And again, sort of talks about their failure to do this very thing, to, to worship rightly, to worship in such a way that the nations want what you have. That's what he says. You, you say that the Lord's table is polluted. What he's talking about there is the place of sacrifice and that its food may be despised. I don't know if you know this, but the priests would actually eat the sacrifice afterwards. So they'd offer the sacrifice and then they would actually eat a portion of it. And that was part of their pay for being a priest. Well, some of the priests are basically saying, you know what, I'm getting tired of goat. That's what they're kind of saying. <laughs> I'm tired of sheep every week. It's, this food isn't very good. They're complaining about what they get to eat. And then verse 13, what a weariness this is. And they snort out. In other words, saying, this is, just, this is just getting tiresome. I have to come to the temple every day. I have to bring these sacrifices and do all of these certain rituals. And have to bring people and help them worship. And I'm getting tired of this. This is just wearisome. <laughs> and God says, wow, a wearisome when you come to me and worship. And again, cursed is the cheat who offers blemished animals. All along, you know you have that, that prize animal that really belongs to the Lord and you keep it for yourself. He says, you're being dishonest. You're lying. I mean, what, what does it matter? No one around you knows you're lying, but the Lord knows you're lying. You're stealing from God, as he says later on. God ends verse 14, the section, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, by saying, I am a great king. Again, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of Israel, and my name will be feared among the nations. In other words, am I not worthy? Am I not worthy of your best when it comes to worship? Eventually, all the nations will hear and believe and worship in my name. And what a striking thing that worship is for all the nations. For all the nations. Jesus even described the temple itself as a house of prayer for all nations. So even the temple, when it was first built, was meant to be a place where anyone in the world could come and could worship. Isaiah says that Israel's original intent was to be a light to the nations, that all peoples would see Israel and want to come to believe in the God who has chosen them. And they weren't doing a good job of shining that light. And the reason they were failing, according to Malachi here, is their worship wasn't impressive. <laughs> See, friends, this is why I said that worship is part of our evangelism. Worship is part of our mission. The way we worship says something about the way we view God. How do you view God? Look at how people worship. If they view God as unimpressive, as not worthy of your best, as not worthy of your all, as not worthy of your heart, your emotions, your mind, then who wants to worship a God like that? This is an illustration that will probably not... Uh, Hit home for some people that are uh, over a certain age. But any, anyone seen the movie The Avengers? Right? I mean, how many people have seen The Avengers? Okay, there we go. Yeah, it's, it's mostly a, a split age thing. But there's this one part where the Hulk comes across Loki, who is this, uh, for, this alien uh, god, supposedly. And Hulk, the Hulk walks up to Loki, and Loki says, Stay back, you mindless brute. I am a god. Right? And the Hulk grabs him, smashes him into the ground, and breaks him into little pieces, basically, and says puny God. <laughs> if that's our view of God, if God is just a puny God, and that's how we approach him and worship, then who wants to worship a God like that? 
Mark Driscoll, who never shies away from controversial statements, but he said, In Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Wow. I fear some are becoming more cultural than Christian and without a big Jesus who has authority and hates sin as revealed in the Bible, we will have less and less Christians and more and more confused, spiritually self-righteous blogger critics of Christianity. Friends, when our view of God fits the scriptures, that Jesus is who he says he is in the scriptures as a mighty king who is worthy of our all, then the nations will say, that is the God I can worship. They take notice. There's a direct reflection upon how we worship and what we think about God. Let's worship and see to others worshiping. Let's worship so joyfully and so fully that others want to have a part of that. I think some of the most joyful times, and I mean pleasure times in my life, were times of worship, actually. Whether that's being alone and just thanking God for who he is or whether that's being gathered here on a Sunday morning or wherever it may be, times of just recognizing the love of God and responding to him in praise. Friends, when people see that joy, they say, I want a part of that, I want a piece of that. Tell me about what brings you to that level of joy in your worship. I think I've quoted this before, but one atheist said one time, you know, one thing I miss the most about believing in God now that I'm an atheist is when something great happens or when I see something beautiful, I have no one to praise. (laughs) What a statement that is because we as Christians know there is someone to praise when we see beauty and greatness and goodness. We have the Lord who's worthy of our praise. Let's let our neighbors know that they might enjoy this worship as well, that they might enjoy singing and celebrating a God so good and so perfect and so powerful as the God we serve. And friends, let's see to the nations that others who have maybe never heard the name of Jesus, who don't know Jesus, that they might worship him as well. You may have heard this before, but John Piper famously said this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Think about that. There's no missions in heaven because everyone in heaven already believes. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. That's the whole point of missions, is to bring people to know and worship and enjoy their Creator. One more paragraph. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from their heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. 
missions begins and ends in worship. The way we worship, friends, is a statement to all the people around us here in our city and in our world of who God really is. And friends, the ultimate goal when we go forth to tell people is that they might enjoy God in worship as well. God is worthy of kingly worship, of wholehearted worship. Let's know that God loves us. He loved us before we loved him. He loved us when we were unlovable, by the way, as the scripture says, and he made us his own. Let's give him the honor as father and as master, the intimacy and the love and the relationship of father, the reverence as master, governor, or king. Let's go to him for favor and grace. To be in the presence of the Lord is to be changed, is to be blessed, is to benefit. And let's recognize that this is meant for all people. All people, without exception. Malachi deals with getting life right. What he sets forward is the first and foremost thing, worship. How do we relate to God? When we set that in order, friends, the other parts of our life begin to fall into place as well. God is worthy of wholehearted worship. Pray with me. Our gracious Father, thank you so much for your presence with us. I thank you that we can know you as Father and as King. And even now, Lord, as we come to you, we do so as one that we, we honor. We recognize that you are not like us, that you are indeed the infinite God of all the nations and of all the ages. In fact, you stand outside of time itself as the creator of this universe and all the matter that exists within it. But we also know you as Father, as Abba, as one that we can have a relationship with, that one we can know personally and intimately, the one who loves us and has demonstrated that love to us again and again, both in history, the gift of his Son to save us and bear our penalty, but personally, Lord, as you have met with us, as you have drawn us to yourself, that we could know you, be forgiven of our sins, be adopted as sons or daughters, and have the gift of eternal life. Lord, bring us a powerful sense of worship, a worship that our city, and even our world, in a sense, takes note of. God, worthy of our praise, who loves us, and that we respond rightly by loving you back. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I think you